morning, Doxa. My name is Ronnie, one of the pastors here, and we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 this morning. If you want to grab your Bibles and turn there, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 through 34. And uh, sometimes when I'm sitting up in this upper corner of the auditorium here, I find myself like reminiscing and turning and uh, watching all of you as you sing. I asked the first service if that's weird or, or creepy or anything. A couple of my friends said yes. Um, but guys, I am amazed at like just, just looking around the room. And if you think about what's happening on a Sunday morning is like we're basically all just getting into this room gathering around this, this simple message of the gospel, opening up our Bibles, singing songs of Jesus, and I'm amazed at what God has, has done to, to create this gathering of people. I remember when all that Doxa was was Rob and I and a couple college students. Um, I remember the, the first time that we, we uh, sang and prayed in Madison. We were in the basement of a great church in Madison called The Vine, and we were down there on kind of like a vision trip with these students, just, just singing some of these same types of songs, praying to Jesus, wondering like what God would do. And then you can kind of track our three-year history of just seeing how that little small group gathering around the gospel has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. And then here we are today, just this, this family gathering around the gospel, coming together week after week. But I want you to look down at verse 17 with me to how Paul opens up the text this week. This is what he says. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, when you gather together as a church, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Okay, so here's Paul, as he's been doing, right, confronting us. Did you know that it's possible for us to come together as a church and actually be worse off spiritually? Okay, that gathering together can actually be counterproductive to our witness, that there's a way to gather together around the gospel that is actually a betrayal of the gospel. So I want you to look at this picture that's going to come up on the screen. This is from a, a church in Portland, Oregon in like the, the 1920s, and I'm sure you could find pictures like this from that, that era in American history all around and Doxa, sometimes there's, there's ways that we can do things in the name of Jesus that is actually like a denial of the name of Jesus. And something like this is what was happening in Corinth. Okay, look back down at verse 17. It says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. So that, that term, the Lord's Supper, he's talking about, you might call it the Lord's Table, the Lord's Supper, Supper Communion, or you might notice this just kind of little cup that we get on the way in. That's what he's talking about. He says, this is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Okay, so Paul, he is obviously bringing some correction to the church in Corinth here, and he's saying there's a problem with the way that you're observing the Lord's Supper, but more than that, that the way that you're doing the Lord's Supper, it's symptomatic of a much deeper problem. Okay, the way that you're gathering as a church around the gospel, 
And celebrating communion, it's exposing a division that actually denies the gospel. In verse 18, he says, I'm not talking about like the necessary distinction that the church creates between Christian and non-Christian, right? He's like, I'm not talking about those with genuine faith in Jesus Christ and, and those who have like a counterfeit faith. Like that's actually a, a distinction that just gets made by the gospel. And it's a good distinction to know, are you in the family of God or are you not? He says, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a division among Christians, genuine believers, that makes your church a living contradiction to the gospel that you preach. Look at verse 20. He says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. So they're taking the Lord's Supper. He says, but the way that you're doing it, it's not actually the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. So this is the passage that if you've heard anything about 1 Corinthians, people are like, it's just these crazy Christians. They're getting drunk on communion. And that, that's true. <clears throat> they're getting drunk on the communion wine, but that is not what's most shocking to Paul. When Paul says what, like with the exclamation point right there in the text, he is not so shocked that they're getting drunk off communion. He's shocked that there's some people that are having so much of the communion wine that they're able to be drunk and some that have so little of it. Like there's this massive disparity, this massive difference between them and it's exposing a way that these people are viewing each other in the church. He says in verse 22, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Right? Like, or do you just despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Paul, he, he's angry at the wealthier members of the Corinthian congregation who are basically having their own private communion meals. Okay, that's what's happening. As, as they come together as a church, rather than taking communion all together, the, the wealthier people bring this like lavish feast and they're having this as this private extravagant meal. And the problem isn't that it's extravagant. Right, like, like the problem with the way they're taking communion isn't that it's so extravagant that they could get drunk. The problem is that it's private and it's excluding those who couldn't like put together a meal like that. Okay, the problem wasn't that they made communion a massive feast enough that they could get drunk off. The problem is that they made it about status. The poor members of the church who couldn't pull off such a meal, they weren't invited and they're going hungry. And so the bottom line is that the church in Corinth, it appears to be divided along the all too familiar lines of socioeconomic status, just like in the world. And that's what's so shocking to Paul. Okay, the way that they were gathering around the communion table, it's basically preaching a false gospel, right? The false gospel that God favors people who have more money. That the Lord Jesus at his table, he makes more room for people at the table if they have enough economic and social capital. And so Paul, he's, he's fuming because of the way that they're living just like the world, not the way of Jesus. He says, how much do you have to despise your brothers and sisters in Christ to humiliate like, them like that? And, and how much more do you have to despise not just these people, but the church of God? You have to despise God to treat his table like that. Have your own private feast at your house. Like there's other places in the Bible that will talk about what we should do around our own dinner tables as Christians. But here he's just saying this is the Lord's Supper. Like go have your own private extravagant meal at your house, but not at the Lord's table. And so then skip down to verse 27 to see what he says. He says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. And so again, you can be guilty of celebrating the gospel, listen, guilty of celebrating the gospel in a way that contradicts the gospel. So he says, 
let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So what are we to examine? Here it is. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And then this line, if you didn't know this was in 1 Corinthians, here we go. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Just drops that. Drops that in there, by the way. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So Paul, he's, he's clearly serious about this. Right? He's saying this is probably the reason that some of you are sick and, and dying. In verse 30 right there, like this is a good example in the Bible of something that is descriptive, not prescriptive. In other words, Paul is describing that the way that you're abusing the communion table, the way that you're abusing one another along socioeconomic lines, like that's actually probably the reason why some of you are sick and, and dying. He's describing what's happening. He's not prescribing that this is what will always happen forever in the church or else there'll be a lot more people sick and dying throughout the history of the church because of taking communion in an unworthy manner. But the point is just that it's, it's serious, okay, and it needs to be corrected. And so what's the correction? He says, when we come to the Lord's table, we need to examine ourselves. In verse 28, you see that? It says, examine yourself. But then look to 29, because he basically focuses what he means by that. What what does he mean by this self-examination? Well, he says, discern the body. Examine yourself and, and do that by discerning the body. And so this is a passage that at first glance you you think, and, and some of us often think, like this means to, to look inward in self-reflection, right? To think about our sin, to kind of approach communion in a reverent way where we're actually like thinking about our sins so that we can rightly receive the gospel. And self-examination is a good practice. It's good to kind of pause and take stock of your life before we take communion. But, but that's not what Paul's talking about. Paul isn't correcting the Corinthians by telling them to look even more inward. He's actually telling them to look outward. When he says discern the body, he's referring to the body of Christ, the church, the people of God. Okay, he's telling them when you come to the Lord's table, don't, don't be inward focused. Don't close your eyes and just think about yourself. Actually, open your eyes. Look around the room. Look at this community that God has created, these brothers and sisters in Christ. And then here's the point. Make sure that the community that you see around you, the way that you're taking the Lord's table, is an accurate reflection of the gospel that you're celebrating. It's a call to have a community that has integrity with the message that's built around. So look at his practical application in verse 33. Here it is. He just kind of brings it to a point. He says, oh, so here's what I'm telling you to do. Here's my correction. So then, my brothers... Simple enough. When you come together to eat, wait for one another. Wait for one another. Don't go in these divisions and have your private meals based on who can afford it, but wait for one another. Eat the Lord's table together. And if anyone's hungry, let him eat at home. So then when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About other things, I'll give directions when I come. Okay. So that's what's happening in Corinth. Now, for us, if you haven't noticed, we uh, don't practice communion with these huge, lavish feasts that we could get drunk off. This is what we, somewhere down the line, through the history of the church, it like has whittled itself down to this. <laughs> this is what we get. This little plastic cup, and I'm pretty sure, I mean, I know this thing isn't made of any type of real bread. Like, it might, it's plastic or styrofoam or something. Definitely our loss, in my opinion. I understand, you know, just, even just being in leadership, how logistically it might be hard to pull it off 
on a Sunday morning to have communion like this, and, and at least we get to do it in connection groups, right, where we, we get together and, and share a meal together. Um, but when you try to translate, like, what's going on here and figure out, like, okay, is there any way that as we take communion, like, this same type of thing is happening, I don't think that the way we take communion here at DOXA really exposes any divisions in our community. It's, a pre- it's pretty equitable, right? It's just you walk in the door, you get this, everybody's got a cup, everybody's got the same cup, it's the same lousy little, little cup. But that doesn't mean those divisions aren't there. It doesn't mean they're not there. Unfortunately, it means we might just have to look a little harder to find them. Because we've been seeing this all throughout our study of 1 Corinthians, that it is all too common for the value system of the world to start to become the value system of the church. Right? The world, it says that a person's value is determined by being the right gender, by having the right talents, by your financial position, your political affiliation, your ethnicity, your occupation. Right? And in the church, we can do the same thing too. We can divide along these lines, even in just like a super small way of, of who you choose to move towards on a Sunday morning and greet the type of person you choose to have over to your house on a Sunday afternoon for lunch. But the Lord's table, communion, it puts everyone on a common ground. Just think about it. The meal that the Lord gives us at his table, it's not presented to us on fine, extravagant china, but on a rugged wooden cross. What we're gathering around in that meal, it's, it's a crucifixion. Okay, and we, when we gather around that table, what we are looking at, what we're observing, is the horror of what we've become as human beings. Sinners, deserving crucifixion, the wrath of God. But at the same time as we gather around that table, we are also looking at the wonder of what Jesus has done. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul, he says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the truth that the cross and the Lord's table proclaims. This is the truth that like all of us, we share this common status as sinners who needed a savior, and then we found one in Jesus. And then anyone and everyone who finds himself in Christ becomes the righteousness of God. And so Paul, he's, he's stepping in today, with the word of correction, and he's saying that our community and church should be a reflection of the communion table. The picture that we see in communion should become the picture that we actually see in our community. Okay, and you should have noticed that, that we skipped verses 23 through 26. So let's look at that now at just this description of what is the communion table. Verse 23, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink this, eat this bread and and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So maybe you've always been confused about like, what, it, what exactly is ha- happening when we do this. Like what is communion? You've walked into to churches and seen it. And it's basically this, guys. The Lord's Supper, communion, the Lord's table, it's, a, it's like a church family tradition. It's a church family tradition where we remember and we proclaim 
the gospel together. We, we like reenact it physically together, as Paul says, until the Lord returns. Okay, it, it doesn't save us. There's nothing, there's nothing magical in, in the, the juice, in the bread. There's nothing that like when you ingest it, like God forgives you of your sins, but it's a, it's a physical representation of the fact that he already has in Christ. It's a way to tangibly remember it. And there's a pastor named Paul Tripp who, he has this term called gospel amnesia. And he basically says this is, this is the, the condition of, of Christians. We have, we have gospel amnesia. Basically, we wake up every morning and overnight, somehow, mysteriously, our heart has just drifted away from a firm trust in Jesus Christ and we've kind of moved back into to self-justification mode, self-salvation mode. We've forgotten about, about grace. We have gospel amnesia. And in the same way, every week when we show up to church, we've all just been formed by the world over and over again, and we're kind of out of whack. Our posture is not right. We're shaped by the values of the world. And so German theologian Martin Luther, he famously kind of talks about like, okay, so what do we do about this gospel amnesia that we have? And this is what he says. He says, well, we need to know the gospel well, we need to teach it to others, and we need to have it beaten into our heads continually. (laughs) Beaten into our heads continually. That's a pretty good, when I think about like essentially what we're trying to do when we get in the room together on Sunday mornings, we're trying to beat the gospel into one another's heads continually. Because we have gospel amnesia. In communion, the Lord's table, it's a practice that can do just that. It can beat the gospel into our heads continually, right? As we participate in it, we, we reenact the gospel. We get a picture of what our community should be like. Because our community should look like communion. It should look like the Lord's table. And so let me just give you just like three, three things from, from this picture of communion. Three, three things our community should be about. A community of grace, a community of welcome, and a community of hope. Let's start with a community of, of grace. When Jesus, he, he took the bread. He says when you take this and when you break it, what you're looking at is a picture of, of what literally happened to my body. With his disciples, he held up the bread, he broke it, he said, this is my body. Think, think about that. What he's saying is that the all-powerful God who created the universe, he stepped into human history and he became breakable. He allowed his physical body to be torn apart by the very people that he created. And so if you've ever felt like you're breaking down, you're, you're disintegrating, you're falling apart, you're being torn apart, you're humiliated, you're crushed, Jesus Christ would look at you and say, I felt like that too. And when we break the bread, we, we remember that. We identify with that. But Jesus didn't just say, break the bread. He said, eat the bread. He didn't just say, my body was broken. He says, it was, it was broken for you. And so Christianity, it's not fundamentally about God giving us rules or a way of life to follow. It's not fundamentally about Jesus Christ setting an example for us about how to live. Christianity, it's fundamentally about grace, about what God does for us, not what we do for him. In the grace of Christianity, the gift that God gives us is substitution. Jesus Christ on the cross for sinners, God in our place, the Son of God taking on the wrath of God on behalf of the people of God. And so if you're here this morning and you're looking for a way to rebuild your life, you're not who you want to be, you're not who you thought you were going to be, Jesus, he would take a piece of that broken bread, he would say, this is my body, which is for you, eat it. 
And what Jesus is saying to you in that moment is he's saying, you are a sinner against God. You deserve nothing but wrath, and that will break you. But I'm willing to take your place. Jesus would say to you, you want to rebuild your life? You cannot fix what is wrong with you. Your only chance is my grace. Eat this bread. Eat it. Take it. Take it in. A community of grace. And so that means that, now think about this with me, the only way to be excluded from a community based on grace is to reject grace. And that means the only prerequisite to being able to be a part of a community that's based on grace is to admit your need for grace. So to put it in like real layman's terms, anyone can get in on this. Anyone can get in on this. And so we're a community of, of grace, and that also means that we should be a community of welcome for any type of sinner that has ever realized that they need a Savior. Look at verse 25. It says, In the same way, he also took the cup after the supper, saying, This is the cup, the new covenant in my blood. So he says, The new covenant. Now, the Old Covenant, you read about in the Old Testament of the Bible, is basically the, this promise, this way, this arrangement for how God and humanity can have relationship. The Old Covenant was about how people can be accepted by God and the community of God, and it was all based on your ability to keep the law. Okay, your performance, your production, your righteousness, your ability. And so picture this, when Jesus Christ, Paul's recounting this for us, he's saying when Jesus Christ, when he sat around the table with his disciples, they're still thinking about God largely in that way. That's how they're thinking about community, they're thinking old covenant. But then Jesus, he raises up this cup and he says, this cup, this represents the new covenant, the new way for us to be in relationship. And so as they looked at the cup, they would have been wondering, okay, so what do we have to do? What do we have to do to keep up our end of the bargain? And what does Jesus say? He says, drink this cup. Drink it. Take it in. The old covenant was about you producing something. Jesus says the new covenant is going to be about you receiving something. The new covenant in my blood. See, when Jesus' body was broken on the cross, it wasn't just like he, he broke his arm. His body was, was broken and his blood was poured out. He wasn't just wounded or injured. He gave up his whole life. He poured out his blood. And Jesus is saying in that moment, when I pour out my blood, what I'm doing is I'm giving up my whole life to make a new covenant with humanity, a new promise, my life for your life. I promise you, I seal it with my blood. And the whole Old Testament of the Bible is just aching, looking for an answer to the problem of human sin and our inability to fulfill and, and live by the law of God. The Old Testament prophet Jeremiah, he ached with this longing, and he was, he was longing for, for somehow, some way, someday, that there would be a new arrangement, a new covenant. And he talks about it in his letter, in his, his prophecies that he wrote. And he said that one day, you know what's going to happen is, is God, he's just going to have to give humanity a new heart. Not just hearts that are forgiven for their sin, but hearts that can actually be, be changed to the point that we can learn to love and listen to God. And so when we drink the cup, Jesus says, this is the new covenant in my blood. I'm not just giving you a fresh start or a blank slate. I'm giving you a new heart. 
And Paul says you become a new creation when you're a part of this new covenant. His body broken for you. His blood poured out for you. Jesus Christ standing in place of sinners before a holy God and then rising from the grave to create a new people of God. A new people of God who have been washed clean and united by his blood. This means men and women, rich and poor, every ethnicity, every personality, Our common story is that we were all sinners who needed a Savior, and we all are welcome at the common table of the Lord Jesus. That's what communion is meant to show. Okay, that we all stand as as equals at the foot of the cross. And what Paul's saying here to the Corinthians is is that reality, that, that equal footing at the foot of the cross, that pattern of communion is supposed to become the pattern of your community in the family of God. So look again at 33. He says, So then, my brothers, in light of all this, when you come together, when you gather as a church, when you are physically together as a community, wait for one another. Wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let them eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About other things, I'll give directions when I come. So, Doc said, there is a way to come together as a church. There's a way to gather together, even as connection groups, that, that actually leaves people out in the same way that people get left out in the world. Okay, not, not smart enough, not pretty enough, not fun enough, not rich enough, not strong enough, not like us enough in some way. But the gospel has nothing to do with that. Because the gospel says Christ is enough. And if you're in Christ, you are enough to belong. And so every time we take part in the Lord's Supper together, as we gather together on this table, we should, we should not just kind of look inwardly at ourselves, but we should look around the room at one another, at our brothers and sisters in Christ. We should, as Paul says, discern the body. Notice that you are a part of the body of Christ and remember that you're united by the blood of Jesus. It's a community moment. It's this community moment where we remember and we reaffirm together that his blood is more defining to our identity than even our own family bloodlines, our ethnic bloodlines. That the bond that we share in Jesus, it transcends our political affiliations and our social status. And we do that on a Sunday, and then Monday through Saturday, we go out into the world together and we live like that. And what Paul is describing, what he's, what he's calling us to, this is a community that only God could create. It's the type of community that the world is scrambling, trying to figure out, is, is there a way that this could ever be possible and it can't find it? And every time we gather together on Sunday and we take this flimsy little plastic thing, we come together for the Lord's table, and what we're doing, Docs, is we are announcing to the world, we are proclaiming, as Paul says, that this type of community is possible and that this type of community is what is coming one day. And we're waiting for our Lord to return. So communion, it makes us a community of grace, a community of welcome, but also a community of hope. Look at verse 26. It says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This reality that the Lord Jesus, he came into this broken world once to die and pay the penalty for our sins, 
But our great hope is that he's actually coming back again one day to take us forever from the presence of sin once and for all. Brothers and sisters in Christ, he's coming back for us. Jesus is coming back for us. He came once and he's coming again. Like, that's what we proclaim to each other every time that we take communion. We proclaim it to the world. He's coming back for us. And in communion, it's not only about remembering him, it's about longing for him. It's about waiting for him. Every time we experience communion together and we, we physically taste the bread and the wine, what we're doing is we're experiencing just a, a small foretaste of the feast of heaven. Just a, a dim, small foretaste, but, but real. And it's meant to change everything about the way that we relate to one another. Like, how, how could we possibly exclude people from, like, our, our social circles in this life who, because of the blood of Jesus, we know we will be reigning and ruling for all eternity with in the next? The prophet Isaiah, he was given basically a vision of, of what this, this future feast of heaven is going to be like. Everything that, that communion in a lot of ways is pointing towards, Isaiah was given a, a clear vision of it. So it's going to come up on the screen. I want you to just listen, read, and, and imagine with me what it will be like on that day. This is what Isaiah saw. He says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God, he will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, Doxa, this, this day is coming for us. Behold, this is our God we have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad. Let us rejoice in that salvation. All right, take out your cup. Take out the little wafer, the bread. And I just want you to hold it up and Just realize, Docs, that this, this bread means that the body of Christ was really broken for us. Okay, it means that we will really one day experience the feast of heaven. Jesus, he, he stood in your place. He stood in our place. We are united by this broken bread. Take it and eat. And open up your, your juice. Doxa, this juice in this cup, it means that Jesus really did pay for all of our sins with his blood. He paid them in full, past, present, and future. And that means that what's true of Christ is now true of you. Okay, there is no more wrath. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and it means that he really will one day wipe away every tear from your face.
Let's take this and drink it as a proclamation together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your plan to send Jesus to us. Father, thank you that while we were still sinners, while we were still running away from you, raising our fists against you, you sent Jesus to die for us. Jesus, thank you for sending the Holy Spirit to open up our eyes so that we could actually see your glory and receive that salvation. God, thank you for giving us this this tangible picture to remember and proclaim what is true until you return. Jesus, we thank you for your blood. Help us to to build our lives on nothing but